1: and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
2: Well, Lloyd, today our show is about whistleblowers. And I have to tell you, I am so excited because we are actually bringing on this show a friend of mine that I had been on the state bar committee with for several years back in the 80s. And we used to see each other at these meetings and we haven't seen each other in a really long time. And then I saw this article about her that she was the attorney on a case in which her plaintiff won $730,000 because there was a jury verdict against UCD. As, in, as a whistleblower, so we're going to talk about that and about the issues with regard to employment law. And we have just, oh, let me tell you a little bit about Mary Alice. First of all, I just am been in awe of her for so many years. She's just been such a mover and shaker. But let me tell you a little bit about her. She has a long history of fighting for the disadvantaged, powerless, and mistreated, after 20 years as a public sector lawyer, when I knew her, she, had, she launched her private practice in 2003, and she's going to tell us why she did that. Her personal experiences as a public sector whistleblower continue to drive her and focus her on employment and civil rights matters, and particularly on whistleblower retaliation issues. She especially relishes taking on public sector defendants and the lawyers and bureaucrats who represent them. But she also loves standing up to big corporate entities as well. And she advocates for her clients inside and outside of the courtroom. She's testified numerous times at the state capitol and has advocated at the U.S. Capitol on statutory changes to protect employees. And... Um, she has been recognized as a top labor and employment attorney by the California Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the entire state of California. And she has among the top women lawyers in Northern California by San Francisco Magazine and cited as a super lawyer in 2010, 11, 12, 13, and 14. She is a super lawyer and a super woman and a super person and i i just want to tell you her firm the firm's very first jury trial resulted in a multi-million dollar verdict against a national private school that fired its local director for refusing to obey california's teacher-to-student racial laws that was scottford versus phoenix schools inc she has so many wonderful cases that she has had huge recoveries But I I don't want to take any more talking about her. I want to talk with her so she can talk herself. Mary Alice, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, hello, Mari. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me to your program.
2: Well, this is just, you've done such great work. I remember when you went through your challenges. We, you know, I remember when you were the public sector lawyer and when we wrote articles together, we were both. Co-chairs of the Middle Income Committee you did so much, and then there was a big challenge in your life. So I would love for you to just share a little bit about that switch from being that public sector lawyer to being a whistleblower to turning into a a hero for so many people.
0: Okay, well, I was uh, a staff attorney with the California Department of Consumer Affairs for a number of years, and... Um, At one point, I was asked to review an investigative report, and in the course of reviewing this report, I discovered some information that was very disturbing, um, and it included death threats against some high-level employees of the department I worked for, and essentially, that was a um, an event that changed the course of my life, and the way I responded to that and the way the department responded to me uh, is responsible for me now being in private practice, <laughs> which I love by the way.
2: yeah, at the time, I remember going through this with you, and I remember how what a horrible situation and the pain that you went through and the anguish. But knowing you and knowing the type of person you are, you went from from victim to victor, and you are now just a champion for other people who are victimized, not only in the workplace, but for civil rights. So I just applaud you so much that you took what you went through and you grew from it and you really made it into a wonderful private practice, which At the time, it didn't seem like a good idea, but it turned out to be um, a blessing in disguise. But it sure was all of your work that did it, that's for sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about what protections exist for UC employees who want to report wrongdoing or want to report retaliation for questioning wrongdoing at at a UC school. Well, here we are on
0: the campus of UCI. Can you tell us? Okay, sure. Actually, the the basic California whistleblower protection law has existed for several years, uh, but the specific protections for University of California employees uh, were per- were added only in the last few years. Uh, and as a result of several people, including my client Janet Kaiser, and I both testified at the Capitol to adopt the amendments to protect california whistleblowers who work at the university system and at this point now state employees uh, of the executive branch and of the judicial branch which would include the university of california employees are protected by the california uh, whistleblower protection act unfortunately legislative branch employees have no such protection mm-hmm. uh, maybe that might change in the future um, but this law, the in the government code eighty five forty seven protects University of California employees, uh, supplements the policies that exist within the UC system and statutorily protects whistleblowers within the University of California.
2: So Mary Alice for, for the students that are on campus and the you know, owners of businesses that are driving by and people that are listening. Some people may not know exactly what you mean by a whistleblower. How would you define a whistleblower?
0: That's a very good question. And I, I actually don't like the term whistleblower. I actually like to use the word truth teller. Yep. And the reason I say that is whistleblower has come to have somewhat of a negative con- connotation. And I believe that most employees, especially public employees, are in a position, they've got a front row seat to see how the people's business is being done, and they're the ones that know where um, the facts and the events are going on that might constitute what we call improper governmental activities. Um, But I really prefer to refer to these employees as truth tellers You might start asking questions about something that they believe might not be right, and that's a better reference than whistleblower. But you're right. The common term is whistleblower.
2: Yeah, and I think people hear that. So I'm glad that you were able to clarify that. And, you know, some people, you know, we've heard so much about Edward Snowden, you know, from my perspective, from just seeing what's been going on and what he's brought to light, he, you know, he fills that whistleblower. And some people think he's a traitor. But for me, I think he was a whistleblower, especially with regard to privacy issues and NSA and, and spying. But um So I won't get into the politics of that, but that's just for someone to consider when you're bringing out the truth and you're, you know, you're in an inside position to be able to tell that. Let's go back to the UC schools. Um, Various UC schools are are constituted by distinguished academicians, officials, administrators. Now, is there really a problem for employees at such high profile institutions if they call attention to failures I mean. now that we've got this law, is there really a danger that they will be fired now?
0: For these Well, people- that's a really good point, and I believe that, that sometimes there's a, a misconception that regardless of how many years of education you have or how many years of professional experience you have or how knowledgeable you are about a specific subject area, some people still react improperly. Uh, and angrily to someone else pointing out that some illegal conduct or something that's not proper might be going on, and so certainly a university campus uh is a prime spot where this can occur and does occur
2: yep, so you've had a lot of different cases at the u c schools um Let's, can you tell us some of the kinds of retaliation that have that your UC clients have experienced?
0: Sure. There's, uh, of course, retaliation comes in many many forms, and uh, it can be spoken, it can be written, or it can be acted out. Um, it can include words or action, and The basic nature of these words or action is to intimidate or coerce or threaten or order somebody to do something or not do something which interferes with a protected right to speak up. So that's the basic um, definition of retaliation. Certainly it can include... um, fundamental personnel actions, which are the most commonly known uh, types of retaliation, which could be a denial of a benefit, a denial of a promotion, a denial of a vacation request, um, a transfer, uh, write-ups, reprimands, performance reviews, different ways that it's a very distinct retaliatory action and has direct financial consequences, but that's not the only type of retaliation, and it doesn't have to be an ultimate action in order to constitute retaliation. Mm -hmm. So it can be a course of action or a pattern of actions that when taken together, they materially or adversely affect the terms or conditions of one's employment, and Impairs an employee's ability to um, advance in their career or their profession.
2: Right, right. So I know you just litigated this case that went on for seven years, right? The the Janet Kaiser, wow, versus the Regents of the UC. Will you tell that story? That's the one that, you know, I read that article that I went, wow, Mary Ellis, we have to talk about this. So let's talk about that case. Tell How how did that happen, and how'd she come to you, and what'd she tell you?
0: Okay. Ms. Kaiser um, is one of the most wonderful clients any lawyer could hope for. Um, She's a longtime nurse, registered both in California and in New Jersey, and she had been working over at the University of California at Davis for nine years. When I first met her, Uh, at that time, she had... Um, been serving as a nurse researcher. She has a bachelor's degree and also a master's degree, and her specialty um, is very nuanced uh, that she uh, implements and develops medical chart abstraction tools for research purposes. Hmm. So she had been doing that on various research projects for nine years at the University of California, Davis. Uh, In late 2006, she went to work on a new project. Um, It was a $5 million grant called the Community-Oriented Pain Management Exchange Project, or COPE project, as we called it, which was being done in coordination with UCSF and also the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the primary goal was to develop some pain management tools for use in the California prison system, uh, particularly with prisoners who have chronic pain conditions. So Ms. Kaiser was working on this project as it started out, and uh, several months after they had begun working on it, they made their first site visit to San Quentin Prison, which is outside of San Francisco. mm mm-hmm. At, during that first visit, uh, Ms. Kaiser became very concerned at some of the observations she made regarding the conduct of the officials and the staff members on the COPE project. Specifically, she realized that prisoners were being interviewed by the COPE project members, but they were not asked to consent to such an interview. Hmm. And they were not even informed that they were participating in a research study by a university.
2: Talk about invasion of privacy, huh? Quite, <laughs> privacy issue,
0: Quite. And, of course, she being the experienced researcher that she was, she knew this was very wrong and something was, was the matter. She also um, became alarmed because... The medical records of the prisoners were being reviewed, again, without compliance with the federal and state laws regarding third-party access. Right, right. And then finally, um, the personal identifier information and some of the medical records were removed from the prison. Hmm. So she became very alarmed about this project and its status, and began asking questions when the team returned to the campus and um, the rest of the story <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so how did they retell
2: yeah how did they retell they didn't uh, they didn't like it that she was causing waves right
0: well she started asking questions and mm-hmm. and for those in the university arena when you are doing human subject research you have to get approval you submit your project and your research plan to what's called the Institutional Review Board for each campus. Right. So she initially asked, are you sure we've got IRB approval to be doing this research? Mm. And to her shock, she learned that the principal investigator and the others working on the team did not have the approval from the IRB. Oh, So she was very concerned about continuing to work on this project and began to distance herself professionally and personally from working on this project. She was concerned not only about the IRB issues, but the privacy issues for the prisoners and for her nursing license, of course. Exactly. So she refused to uh, go on further trips back to San Quentin. And in the meantime, the response she was getting from the university was that she did not, they did not need IRB approval for this particular research. Uh, she disagreed. She explained that she disagreed, uh, but her complaints were falling on deaf ears. Hmm. The next thing that happened um, was somewhat surprising. Um, her husband, who was working part-time on a temporary basis for this project was abruptly fired, and Ms. Kaiser interpreted this as a retaliatory act uh, against her, but being used uh, to hurt her husband, and she immediately resigned from the project. Uh, Thereafter, she tried to obtain other employment at the UCD Research Center, where she had been based for nine years, and the typical retaliatory um, acts began to evolve. She was ostracized. She um, was kept out of meetings. She was told by people, I don't want you causing any problems for us.
2: Uh And
0: basically she was stigmatized by the classic, you're not a team player anymore stigma. Mm. When finally identified a particular job that was perfect for her and what she really wanted, Um, we found and the jury agreed that that particular job was downgraded. The title was changed. The duration was changed. It was moved out of the professional category into a contract position um, so that she wouldn't want it and thus she didn't apply for it. But the university decided that, in their best interest, they needed to give her a job, so they tried to force her to take that position. She believed it was a compromised position and that it would create liability, not liability, I'm sorry, um, exposure later because it was an at-will position. And she was afraid that she would just be fired Right. for a baseless reason later if she took that position. So she refused to apply for it. They tried to force her to take the position. We tried to negotiate. We weren't able to get questions answered. But she did eventually agree that she would take it. By that time, the university said it was too late, and they fired her from University of California, Davis.
2: Oh, my goodness. And I, I read in this article that afterward it, it caused a lot of emotional distress and actually caused her to get a divorce, too,
0: right? It did. It, these kind of events um, are major upheavals in anyone's life. Um was very trying for her marriage. Um, she lost her house, Um Luckily for her, she was able to get employment outside of the University of California without too much trouble, and she just tried to move on with her life. Uh, she did finish her Ph.D. Um, while we were litigating this matter, uh, but she did ultimately lose her career in academia, which she was really working for, and what she wanted to really do with her nursing degree and her doctorate. Yeah, yep.
2: yep. So uh, the jury seemed to really believe her and believe what that this was an a horrible thing to happen, right?
0: The jury was very interested, interesting and um yes, they uh were very empathetic with her story, um with what happened uh with the witnesses that we put on. Um and frankly told us after the trial that they were very shocked and surprised at the officials from uc davis who came on to the stand and testified that they knew nothing about what was going on they knew nothing about the facts they didn't know anything about these events and the jury told us they did not find that to be credible of course not of course not
2: now you know, I know you as a, as one who really believes in negotiation and mediation. What happened when you tried to resolve this matter informally? What happened?
0: That's one of the most interesting aspects of this case. Um, when Ms. Kaiser first came to me, uh, it was before all the ultimate termination from the university occurred. So I did contact the university. I have a lot of interactions with them and know their general counsel and the attorneys in their offices over there and attempted to talk to them. We actually did have some meetings and tried to work it out so that Ms. Kaiser could continue her employment. Obviously, that wasn't successful, um, and we ended up having to litigate whether or not she was wrongfully terminated. But the interesting nuance that came out of that effort to tried to resolve it informally was that the university served me with a witness subpoena for the trial. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so as a litigator, you know how unusual Very. and unheard of that is.
2: What were, what were these? How did, how did they even think that they could do that?
0: Well, I, I don't know, but they did have me served and a week or two before trial Um, in response because I did not know what could happen during the trial if they were to put me on the stand. Right. Of course, I was then obligated to do what I could to make sure my client was protected. So that required that I engage another law firm, Mm. and I engage Lawrence Baum and Associates of Sacramento, to come in and help me with the trial. And that was necessarily necessary only because I might end up on the stand and I had to have somebody at the counsel table with my client.
2: So, Mary Alice, I don't understand. What about the attorney-client privilege? Anything that she would have said to you would have been attorney-client privilege, right? So how did they think that? Right. So I, I'm, I'm confused. What What basis did they think that they could do this?
0: I I never really got a <laughs> clear answer, and um, I think the particular firm that the, it was an outside private firm which the university hired to represent out, did it as an intimidation tactic. And um, did you go
2: into the to the um, to the court and say that you thought you know that you tried to fight that at, at the court and what happened with that or did well you-
0: actually. Actually, um, my client and I decided that that issue was not in and of itself the biggest issue to us because in her position and given how much interaction we had with the university, the attorney-client privilege questions weren't our biggest concern. So uh, we actually decided that fine. You know, if they want to put me on the stand, I'll be happy to tell what's really going on in this case. And my right. client was very willing to do that. Uh, so Mr. Bowman and I worked that out as well. The real irony came that when it was time for me to be called by them, they changed their mind and objected to putting me on the stand.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Of course, some anything that, that she would have told you, you would have just said. I claimed the attorney-client privilege, right? So, you know, that, that might have just been, like you said, an intimidation tactic because you couldn't say anything that she told you,
0: right? Well, but she waived that. That oh, was not did. an issue. Oh, okay. And I ended up taking the stand. Okay. Um, And we wanted the jury to understand exactly what had gone on and uh we had tried to work this out. And we weren't trying to hide anything, and my client didn't have any real attorney-client, information that we didn't want the jury to know. Yeah, you already had told
2: everybody, right. Oh, so you did go up on the stand, Mary Alice? I did.
0: <laughs> I did take the stand.
2: Oh, wow. Okay, so they didn't want you up there, but then your right. ator- the attorney that you hired to help you co- put you on the stand, right? Yes, <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. So what happened? That must have been exciting.
0: <laughs> it was interesting. It
2: was okay, interesting. so he asked you questions instead yes. of them, right? Now, now, did they then come in and ask you questions as well? Oh, yes. And what did they try to do? Try to
0: impeach you about anything or what? Well, the interesting thing actually was that they tried to um, imply that I was the one that advised my client against taking this job they were trying to force her to take. Mm. Um, And frankly... They don't understand how plaintiff's attorneys work, and at least as I work, because I see my role is helping my clients see what options they have. Right. And you don't tell your client to do anything. You try to make sure you identify the options so that they can make a good decision.
2: Right, right. And that's in our rules of professional conduct, is to help the client to to know their options and make a good decision. That's exactly what you're supposed to do.
0: Exactly. So that was primarily what they evidently thought they were going to accomplish when they served me with the subpoena, uh, and I tried to explain that's not exactly the way it works.
2: Oh, I um, love it, Mary Alice. You are so wonderful. Well, we would you believe it? We're out of time. We could talk forever, but I just, I just really honor you for all the great work that you're doing for people who are you know, being honest and revealing things that they should be revealing. So would you just give your website and it's time for us to go?
0: I will be happy to, Maury. Thank you so much. my website is www.MaryAliceColeman.com.
2: You're terrific, and we will have you back again. Keep up all that wonderful work. God bless you, honey.
0: You too, Mari. Okay, nice bye-bye. talking to you. You too, bye-bye.
2: bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 and Irvine and KUCI.org. In the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash piracy. Thank you. Bye. Stay private.